Welcome to First Generation Burn, the podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Too, and I'm your host. Thank you for coming back. We were on a hiatus, but we're back now with more episodes. Season six or season seven, officially. We did that stay home series thinking it was a temporary thing, but I don't think it's that temporary anymore. So uh, this is a special episode, though, to kick it all off, featuring legendary designer, author, creative thinker, educator, Gail Anderson, one of the true goats of the industry. She has an all-time career. We talk about her growing up in the Bronx as a first-generation Jamaican-American, first in her family to receive a college education And also we talk about how she got to Rolling Stone magazine, had an iconic run there, working with Fred Woodward. There's some fun anecdotes there, too. We also talk about her equally iconic tenure at Spotco, creating the identities for so many franchises and posters, uh, shows, basically changed the landscape of New York through design. And we get into how the School of Visual Arts, where she's the BFA Chair of Design and Advertising, Uh, how they're addressing the pandemic and social justice, especially in the education space. And finally, we talk about how important the post office is because Gail has also designed a stamp, something that not a lot of people get to do. So we talk about that experience. Before all that, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, drop a review, and make sure you're registered to vote. Your life depends on it. And without further ado, here's Gail Anderson. So, Gail Anderson, thank you so much for joining us on First Gen Burden. Oh, my pleasure. Designer, educator, lifetime achiever, also one of the true goats of this industry. It's such an honor to talk to you. Uh, Oh, thank you so much. This is great. It's nice to talk to someone else. (laughs) Other than people I talk to every day, all day in meetings. So, (laughs) it's nice to see a different face. Same, same. So I would love for you to start the podcast like we begin every podcast and tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. I'm Gail Anderson, and I am originally from the Bronx, New York. I went to Cardinal High School in the Bronx and uh, and, uh, School of Visual Arts, where I am currently chair of BFA Design and BFA Advertising, and I uh, am creative director at Visual Arts Press. Um, I worked with Fred Woodward at Rolling Stone for many years and uh, then with Drew Hodges or for Drew Hodges at Spotco. Um, And I've been at SVA in many different capacities for almost my entire career. So 30 years this year. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And I serve on the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee for the Postal Service. Oh, yes. I definitely want to talk about that, actually, (laughs) because I know that uh, the Postal Service is very important uh, to a lot of people right now. So I would love to kind of start at in the Bronx really and also um, your your family's uh, heritage and history in Jamaica I just love to know a little bit about what it was like growing up and a little bit about the influences that you had in the beginning sure um, we grew up on Seton Avenue in the Bronx which was the last block of the uh, of the north part of the Bronx and the next block started Mount Vernon. So you got different streets, you had a different area code, different zip code, everything. Um, my folks moved up there in, uh, I think, 63. We lived in the South Bronx before that. And, uh, and uh, my dad wanted to live on the best block. And that was what he 
asked the realtor to show them the best block in the Bronx. And they kept taking my folks to all these different neighborhoods. And he's like, I don't live here. I don't live here. It's like, I want to live there. And they're like, eh, oh, I don't know. Don't know if there are any houses there. And he's like, I want to live on this block. And um, they reluctantly showed my folks uh, a house that they bought, um, moved into, and my dad spent time, and this was, yeah, this was about 60, 62, 63, because uh, I remember them saying uh, Kennedy was shot. When I remember dad was, said he was painting the house when Kennedy was shot and watching the funeral. And, uh, and the neighbors were not that interested in having us. Uh, the neighbors across the street um, would bring their garbage across. And uh, so the pickup day was, you know, two days on one side, two days on the other. And they would bring their garbage and leave it in front of our house uh, hmm. when it was our pickup day instead of... Is that racially motivated? You think? So eventually my dad went across the street very politely and said, please don't leave your garbage out here. You know, your day is Tuesday, Thursday, and ours is Wednesday, Friday, and you leave your garbage in front of your house on your day. And they're like, uh, oh, okay. Our neighbors next door, we shared a driveway, and the who we later became good friends with um, wouldn't use the driveway at the same time we would. They wouldn't use their backyard the same time we were out there. Um, they wouldn't use their back door. Uh, if we used our back door, they would use their front door. Um, so uh, we, my folks, who in, in their own kind of cool way, were they, they were kind of pioneers because they were like, we yeah. want to live here. And this was this little Italian neighborhood and um, with nice little, you know, Bronxy kind of houses. And uh, they wanted to live there, and they the neighbors eventually saw my dad, you know, fix up the house and mow the little tiny strip lawn in front and take care of the tree and all that. And I think they realized that we were just nice, regular people who yeah. took care of the house in a better way than the, the people who owned the house before did. Right. Um, but it really took a long time, and the neighbors right across – uh, who we went, my sister and I went to high school with, we never spoke, ever. We would nod at each other, you know, this is like, how you doing? And even in school, but we never, you would think that these would be my friends. Uh, we were the same age as the two girls, and it was like this dividing line. And uh, and I remember my folks saying, uh, you know, don't, when you ride down the block on your bike, don't turn in people's driveways. And we're like, but everybody turns in the driveways. And I'm like, no, don't. And we had these little rules about what not to do and, and what to be careful of. And we're little kids, and this is the 60s, and you know, yep. we didn't know. And it was just over time, it was like, oh, oh. Hmm. Right, you know. and then you understand what, what the deeper meanings of certain things are. Like, yeah. I, I feels, it feels like from what you're telling me, your, your family was like, you're saying pioneers, but also they, they helped build that uh, West Indian middle-class that, that is thriving right now in the Bronx. Yeah. But it seems like to me. Yep. Yep. They did. And my dad, my, my mom was a little more hot-headed. My dad was a sort of gentle soul and he would walk up from Dyer Avenue from the train station after work, uh, get off the five and walk up this big hill to get back up to our house on Seton Avenue. And again, the neighbor across the street 
same train, walked up the hill, and they never spoke. And then over time, you know, I watched my dad walk up with the guy across the street and chat and go into the house. I was like, okay. You know, my, my dad, in his own quiet way, was sort of the peacemaker. My mother was like, I'm not talking about him. That's it. And, uh, and never, just same thing, just not like we were taught to. Um, <laughs> but became friends with the neighbors next door. And, you know, they, yeah, they, they proved to this, this, this block that, that we were good people. And we kept our house and our little tiny lawn clean and was good kids, went to a good school. And we weren't troublemakers. And, um, yeah, yeah, I feel like we were the, we were literally the first in the neighborhood. So you were also the first generation of your family to be college educated, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. how, what, what was your impetus to pursue the creative arts at an early age? It, I, I think that that's an, an unusual pursuit. I think even now to some capacity, that's oh, a yes. unusual, very special pursuit in yeah. it, when you were growing up. What drove you there? And also, I think, you know, to me, being familiar with your work and all the great stuff you've done, specifically related to New York, it feels like mm-hmm. I've, I've seen so much of New York's culture and entertainment through your eyes. Uh, what, what put you on that path? I loved the city. I loved getting on the five after school and high school and going into the village or going in on Saturdays and you know, it was a hike from where, where we were at the last stop on the five train in the Bronx. It was, you know, an hour plus to get down, get down to the, um, down to the West Village. Um, I loved everything about the city and we took trips in high school. We went to shows. Um, so it was even my family, we, 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 we're in the city every now and then. So it was really a part of my life. And being from the bars is sort of all, all in the same ballpark anyway. Um, and I drew, I had my little magic slate and I drew in my notebooks. And I think for, for us, for my first generation, uh, they just wanted us to go to college. It wasn't like, what do you, what do you study? It was like, just college, college, college. And I remember my folks like, are you sure this is what you want to do? I wanted to go to um, art and design or LaGuardia one for high school. And they're like, yeah, no. You're going to go to regular high school and then you can figure out what you, if you really want to do this. And uh, okay. And they were right. This was, this was the right, right choice for me. And, and I, I think they trusted that I was pretty good at what, I, I was doing, I really loved it. I was quite dedicated to it. And again, they were just like college. So it, it, uh, the SVA was college and that worked. So, um, but you know, you think back and who would think of a kid in the, uh, 1980, um, choosing a creative field, you know, she's not going to make any money. This is when it was still commercial art and not graphic design or, or anything like that. Uh, so the the idea of having a having a job, having a career, was like, eh, and they trusted me. And my first job at Random House, I remember my dad was like, "Well, how much are you making?" And it's like fourteen thousand dollars. And he was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> "He's gonna live here forever." <laughs> and uh, you know, and when I went up to Boston to work at the globe they were like okay this is this is a good move and it's more money and um 
like, oh, she must be pretty good at this after all. Uh, and it was just trust, just wonderful, wonderful trust from them. Yeah. Uh, people, my dad worked for Longies Whitner. He's a watchmaker. Mm-hmm. And so he fixed watches that came back at Longines um, for repair. And he eventually managed the casing department there, which was the department that fixed the watches in the office. Um, and so the people who did well uh, then, late 70s, they went to college and they were engineers. And so he kind of had that in the back of his head a little bit, like maybe the girls should be engineers. This looks like they, these engineers here at Long Jeans um, are the people in charge and they do well. And his job was eventually eliminated uh, for an engineer. Um, but he, again, trusted that we knew what we wanted to do. And my sister's journey, which was far more circuitous than mine, figuring out what she wanted to do, they were still supportive. And and my brother as well. And we were really lucky. The whole first generation of us, all the cousins, um, uh, were all pretty driven. And driven because our parents came here, it got started, and that was the goal that we went to college. So, and we all did, you know. Next generation, not so much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the was like, well, I want to find myself first. And <laughs> I'm going to think about this. <laughs> we were just like, college, 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 college. Right, right. So. Uh, something I talk about on this podcast a lot is the the meteoric leap of the generational uh, the generational shift that happens when you when you leave your home or your homeland and then you come to America and then there's an expectation of the leap of the parentals from one land to the next and then of the of the kids from one um, from one status to the next or one from one socioeconomic yeah. state to the next and like that's that's a huge. Um, leap and and it's amazing to see all the stuff that you've accomplished like for uh, when you were in SVA and also um, kind of in those early days at the globe and also even you know in the beginning of Rolling Stone like what what were what were who were the people that you were looking at what was the influence creatively um, that kind of drove that first you know commercial push who are your heroes? Well, this is all, you know, pre-internet. So right. back in the olden days, it was pre-fax machine even. <laughs> so when I was at the Globe, uh, my boss on Sally was like, try to find out what this fax thing is. <laughs> like, fax? Hmm. <laughs> I called the post office like, do you have a fax? <laughs> and uh, we realized it was eventually this really easy way to send people manuscripts. It's like, oh my God, it's amazing. But uh, I was so lucky to have mentors, really strong, wonderful mentors. And I had that in school with Paula Scher, um, Bud Clark, my media communications teacher in my foundation year, um, Karen Goldberg. Uh, and and at, at the Globe, uh, Ron Campisi and Lynn Staley, uh, and at Rolling Stone, Fred, you know? I, I had people who were patient, who cared, who, um, who taught me and who took the time to teach and, and to, um, to overlook the mistakes and, um, to be gentle. And, uh, so those were my influences. Magazines were my influence, piles of magazines. Um, so book covers, uh, and, and getting all the, the design magazines that no longer exist or barely exist. Uh, 
that was our world in the design annuals. So that's the stuff that you poured through and it's like, who are these people? What do they do? So a, a narrower world than, than we've got now, of course. Uh, and certainly at SVA, I had classmates who, um, a few like Drew Hodges, who I worked for at Spot, who was uh, in a different category than I was, who had an apartment, had a skylight. I remember it was the first time I ever saw a skylight. And I was like, what's this? And how'd you, like, how'd you get one of those? And he collected photography. And I was like, you're a kid. You collect photography? Like, huh? And so it was school and the early jobs that I met people who were so far out of my little Bronxy world. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was amazing. You know, and I, I remember that when I was in high school, uh, I, I wanted to get the New York Times. I wanted to get the Times, the Sunday Times. And my folks, my mother was like, oh, look at you at the Times, because we got the, the Daily News, you know. And if you couldn't get the Daily News, you got the Post. But the right. Times, you couldn't even find the Times oh, in, in the neighborhood. So, so anything like that, any uh, little, like, oh, well, she likes fancy stuff. And, and I just liked different stuff. And I was curious. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And it was just, it was such a, again, now you can just sort of swipe and find everything, but it was, I mean, it was a struggle to find the Sunday times, you know, yeah. which I mean, it sounds like that sounds ridiculous, but it was true. It wasn't in my neighborhood and I had to drive farther to get it. That's interesting. You know? Well, it, yeah. now it's harder to find the Sunday times, I think for other reasons, but yeah. I had to take a 20 minute Uber to get the Sunday times for an illustration I did like a month ago. I was like, this is incredible. <sighs> like in a world of immediacy, I can't just get something delivered. <laughs> like I can't like Uber a Sunday times to the house. It's crazy. You know, like uh -huh. that actually seems like a missing point in service. Um, so <laughs> how did you get the Rolling Stone job? I know so many, a lot of my listeners are students and I know you are such a great, um, figure in education and I know they're going to listen to you. How did you get those first gigs? It's so hard. I know it's, it's, it's hard even now. The first, the, my first jobs out of school came through Paula, you know, through her recommendation. And uh, when I was at the Globe, I used to look at Texas Monthly. And because the editor I worked with, Andy Zellman, would always talk about this guy, Fred, who she worked with a D magazine in, in Dallas and how wonderful he was and what a great designer and how similar we were in, in the way we kind of thought and, and even spoke. And so I would look at magazines that they worked on together. And then I looked at Texas Monthly where he worked and I loved it. And then he went to a magazine called Regardies in DC and I started getting that cause it was, I thought it was so beautiful. And again, she always talked about this guy, Fred and one I remember I got the George Harrison issue of Rolling Stone because I got that in the mail when I was in Boston. And I was like, this issue looks different. And I look at the mouse head and I was like, it's that guy, Fred. And like, ah. Oh. And so I started looking at it a bit and I, th I, I thought, I'm going to write him a letter and I want to get in touch with him. And I would, I would love to work with him at some point. And I, I literally got in touch with him. He was young and foolish enough to pick up the telephone one evening when I called. And at work, and he was like, oh, 
And I said, I work with Andy Zalman and, blah, blah, and can I send you my work? I said, I've been up here for two years and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm kind of figuring out what to do next and maybe come back to New York or whatever. And he said, sure, we actually have a position. So send me, send me some slides. So then I had to go and get slides made quickly of all my magazine spreads hmm. and it's like, Oh my God, I have to find somebody to shoot these slides. And so I get the slides together, label them all and, FedEx them to him and basically sending a portfolio. I sent him a portfolio. Yeah. Cause again, he was sort of young and dumb enough to say, okay, send it to me. And then he called and our receptionist, whose name was also Gail called across the room and said, Fred Woodward's on the phone. And everybody was like, why? And I'm like, Oh, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> that's for me. Jig is up. <laughs> Jig is up. So I, he said, well, you know, this is a lot of work for a young person. And, and why don't you uh, come down one night after work? Because I do have a job and, you know, we can just get to know each other. So in my head, of course, like I had, I had already gotten this job, you know, like I'm, I'm there. And right, right. so I, I fly down after work the next day and he, and, uh, he met and he showed me around and we talked and he didn't hire me. You know, I didn't hear from him for a while. And in my head, I'm like packing and trying to resolve the roommate stuff. I'm like, I don't want to leave my friends and weighing all the options. Like I had all these options. Like, no, no job, no nothing. And I called. I was like, whatever. He's like, oh, I'm still trying to figure it out. And he's like, uh, okay. And by the next time I called, I was like, okay. Like, and he called me back when I was going on vacation with my roommate and her family and another friend. They said, well... You know, I had to hire somebody more seasoned because I'm just getting started here myself. And I was like, okay, fine. Because by this time, like, I overthought it so much and I'm ready to go on vacation. Like, right, and I remember thinking, if he ever calls me back, like, I'm going to do this because I really liked him. And lo and behold, he called back like two months later. So like, well, things have changed and I have another position and do you want to come? I uh yeah what he did though he called my boss he called my editor and said i just want you to know that i'm going to offer her a job and he did that because they were friends and he didn't want to and she spoke to the art director and so by the time i got up and said like fred called again they all knew yeah and i thought it was so gentlemanly of him to not just what people have done to me that you're like wait why didn't you tell me you're going to like steal somebody from me? Yeah. You know, he did the right now thing. Now you wouldn't tell people that you're no people. Yeah. No. And he was so gracious. And then he said, can you come down in like two weeks? I was like, no, like I got a pack. And, yeah. and I said, I can't do that to these guys. Like these have been, this has been my family for these couple of years. I, I've got to come in a month so I can tie up loose ends and pack and come. And he was like, yes, of course. Like, yeah. I said, I don't know you, but I wouldn't do that to you. And, and he was just like, okay, come when you can. And it was just, it was such a lovely way to get a job by asking for one and reaching out to someone and at the right time, you know, yeah. and you, you just, you never know it, when, when that person is going to be dumb enough to pick up the phone <laughs> or to be in a good mood to respond to your email or whatever. So right. don't, don't not do it. Don't overthink it. And right. and my lesson is certainly don't assume you've got a job when you don't. Of <laughs> it's like, what am I going to do? And it's like, this man's not offering me a job. So 
it must have felt like you were being called to the big leagues, I imagine. Well, you know, it, it wasn't about the magazine. And I just liked him. And, and I wanted to work with him. And if he'd been in some other city or at some other magazine, it was less about Rolling Stone mm. than about working with him. And then only when I was there, there was like, oh, yeah, this is a big deal. Yeah. And, and it became a bigger deal as, as we became more successful at what we were doing. And that's, you know, we're, we're still friends. We still text and keep in touch and families and yeah. all that. And that's like the great, you know, the great mentorship of, of my lifetime and career. I would, yeah, I owe so much to him. So I love that. I, so can you tell a little bit about the culture of Rolling Stone at the time and also being in New York and also, yeah, I guess the time period, just like the music industry was an amazing MTV, of course, and yeah. Rolling Stone. They were kind of like pushing so hard in in, uh, in everyone's eyeballs, especially with youth culture. And I know you've done some yeah. iconic work there. One of my favorite covers is your uh, Gillian Anderson yeah. Rolling Stone uh, with the with X-Files. The yeah. So, yeah. uh, well, tell us a little bit about um, any any anecdotes you have, and also what the culture was like at the Rolling Stone at the time. The culture was very different from what I had at either Random House, my first job, or uh, the Boston Globe. Both super super smart people, um, real thinkers, and people who read Rolling Stone. It was younger. It was really pop culture focused. This is the beginning of MTV, the beginning of everything. And I worked with these really smart young editors. Uh, so I was working with contemporaries and, uh, and it was great. It was really quick banter. It was, I was totally in over my head. You know, I was learning about different kinds of music. Fred loved jazz and I learned a lot about jazz. Everybody there loved Dylan and REM and, you know, and stuff that was sort of a little outside my world. Um, and so I, I, I just, I got a lot of free music and uh, those days are over. And I just, I learned so much, you know, about, and not, not just about music, but the, all of the other stuff that we covered and the things that I was interested in the stories that I worked on typically were the political or um, I know just some of the other stuff. And I liked movies and uh, the music stuff. Yes, of course, but it was all the other stuff that was really, really interesting. And they brought in amazing writers. I remember Carl Bernstein being there to, uh, to, to look at a story he was working on and just like, this is so cool. You know, I remember Madonna coming in uh, to take a look at something once. I'm like, who's that? Who was that walking by? So people ask, you know, did anyone famous ever come into the office? And not that often, but every now and then. And, uh, or I was oblivious because I was working. But uh, I remember early, early on when we were still on Fifth Avenue in the first office, uh, Tom Cruise uh, came by my office and said, excuse me, where's the men's room? It was like, uh, over there? It's like, over there, Tom Cruise. I'm just like, what? Tom Cruise just asked me where the bathroom was? Okay. And, uh, and he sent the office a case of champagne after his cover ran. It was very early in his career. I was like, he sent, a, he sent like champagne to the office? Like, oh my goodness. Okay. And I remember Madonna coming by, um, to, uh, to look at, to look at something we were working on. Fred 
was then engaged to Madonna's old roommate from when she first, they came over from Michigan together to be dancers. And, uh, and so she came in to look at whatever the cover we were doing. And, was that a coincidence? Uh, a coincidence. And, and Fred said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting married to, to Janice. Janice Galley. Oh, oh, you got to marry a Michigan girl. And I was just like, this is, this is so crazy. So she was invited to the wedding and all that. The brother came, she couldn't come, but it was just like this weird kind of small world that, that ended up. uh, um, But I remember James Taylor coming into the office uh, and I was like, wow. The same thing. He was like, excuse me, where's Jan's office? I was like, uh, down the hall, James Taylor. It's like, James Taylor! Ah! <laughs> and, uh, you know, people that, even Fred, when, when he came by, Fred was just like, I did a lot of stuff to your music when I was in college. And <laughs> it's like, wow. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I remember the, uh, David Schwimmer and Meg Ryan and Brad Pitt and, you know. Uh, icon. Yeah, yeah, these sort of fun memories. Um, and, uh, it, it was, it's not like it happened every day, you know, by a long shot. And I remember John Kennedy Jr. coming in because he was friendly with Jan. And anytime he came in, we would just like follow him because he was so handsome. And, and it's just like, you would have a piece of paper in your hand, you'd like walk down the hall and follow him. And you would walk down the hall and follow him again. And <laughs> just... That's amazing. I, had, I guess I, I guess when you have a when you have a whole Seinfeld episode dedicated to how handsome you are, oh my God, like, yeah. like all these all these women just like following him down the hall. I mean, like stop if he stopped and try to look busy, and then keep going. <laughs> so you imagine that your life is just people just staring at you, you know. And that's yeah. and I remember his mom came in to meet with Jan, and the same thing. We were all just like, "That's Jackie Kennedy!" Like, wow. There are people who literally took your breath away, you know, and others who were just yeah. like, oh, that's really cool to see whoever. But yeah, people like that who were so iconic and uh, yeah, I wasn't beyond, you know, staring and, and stalking and all that. I was like, I had no, yeah, no shame. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Same. Same. Yeah. Uh, so when, when you moved to Spotco, well, first of all, like, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but uh, I have met you before at Spotco very for a very small sliver of time, it was through Darren Cox and Darren. Yeah. And Darren would have his uh, poster class. I took continuing aid classes as uh, before I got my MFA yeah. there. And then we would occasionally come to Spotco office and I idolized Spotco because I, you know, I loved great poster design. Also, you know, I loved the, the eclectic nature of the creative. Uh, and then it was that night. I forget. It was like a Tuesday or Wednesday or something. I met two people. I met, uh, I think a young Bashana car. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, he was just at the office late. Also, not surprising to me, knowing him, uh, one of my dearest friends now. But then also met a, a young uh, creative director of design at Spaco named Gail Anderson. Also early, I, so. <laughs> I, I, just, I remember you poked your head through the door when Darren was giving us a little bit of a walkthrough. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and this is back in 2005. Uh-huh. Did I, I tell you not to eat all yeah. the candy? <laughs> you might have. <laughs> Very possible. Uh, so, like, at your time at Spaco, because I also, for the listeners, to like, they know my history in, in Broadway design. I, I spent a couple of years at AKA working with Bashan. So, I've kind of been a student of yours without having been a student. 
this by virtue of the people that you've touched and that you've lent your creative knowledge to. Um, some things that we looked at at AKA specifically that kept coming up in terms of the way we should approach visual thinking was uh, your ragtime poster. Uh, with Bashan in it. Rag- I'm yeah, with Bashan in it. Yeah, exactly. No surprise. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, and we also, uh, uh, the Gem of the Ocean poster. I'm oh kind of just goodness. nerding out now. Yeah, Gem of the Ocean poster, uh, who was also, uh, that was also featured in uh, another mutual friend, Robin Landa's book. Yeah. I love Robin uh, so much. I taught at Kane University for a little right. bit. And also, oh, your Lacage poster. The reason I bring up Ragtime and Lacage was because um, I think it, the experience there that I had in that Broadway space was a lot of times you had to do the most with the least. And yeah. also you had to be such a conceptual thinker and, and, you know, bring your chops to the table um, and kind of, you know, create an aesthetic that felt like a production and had a vibe and an energy to it, um, but pulling it out of nowhere. So uh, could you speak a little bit about your, your time at Spot and, and, you know, what brought you to that space? That was, was there eight or nine years, hardest job I've ever had. Of- oh, I bet. I yeah. bet. Yeah. I, you know, I came from places where, the work was um, respected, encouraged. We had rough, a rough last year or two at Rolling Stone when the economy changed. But, but for the most part, you kind of did the work and it was approved and you did more work and, and, and you worked on the sort of one thing and you closed the issue and did another one and closed the issue. This was just night and day for me. This was multiple versions of everything, defending the work, you know, listening to, to criticism that could break your heart. Uh, I, I didn't let the designers come to the meetings because I didn't want to break their spirit. Sometimes it was like, oh my God, the things that people say. I was like, I don't, we don't need to hear this. Um, it, you know, it was hard. It was, it was great for me because I learned that, you know, your first idea isn't always the best. Sometimes your seventh or eighth idea might be the best. Uh, so that was that was interesting after someone who was like one and done, one and done, that uh, it was like, okay, I got, and that I had to learn patience and to really take in other people's comments and concerns. And um, you knew that the people who were in it had invested big bucks in this and uh, the likelihood of anything succeeding was so small uh, that you wondered why they came back and did it over and over and over. Um, and the people who were putting the money into it were in the room with you. And yeah. Changes the dynamic completely. Changes the dynamic, yeah. And the first couple of years, Drew did all the, the presentations and and I just tried to soak it all in. And he was such a salesman and such a masterful presenter and would make you feel like his idea was yours. And uh, he would give up the good idea and give the credit to the the producer or other person and, and tell them they were brilliant for having that idea. And that's just, I was like, what are you doing? And that's like, Oh, this is how you kind of guide them and you make them feel like it came from them and that they're the genius and, and it was your idea and you're so smart. And meanwhile, it's like, that was your idea. That was our idea. 
and it, so it taught me to not be sort of territorial about the work. And it's like, if you really involve them to the point of giving them credit for it, in some cases, they'll sort of get on the bus with you. Um, and it was, it was, it was fascinating to watch him do it. And he was, he was equal parts businessman as he was creative person. And I got to see how, how being able to articulate your, your, thoughts, not in a designy way, because nobody cared about that. Nobody understood that, but in a way right. that, um, it was business driven. Yeah. Yeah. So those, those years, and as I started to do it myself and get it, um, it was people who were so demanding. And, um, and I remember once getting a little snippy in a meeting with somebody who sort of expected me to change something over the weekend. I was like, what? And so I had to, I had to learn to, you know, to, to be patient and, uh, yeah, and to, and to crank. I mean, I was cranking yes. for all those years, but this was just like, okay, rather than designing on the head of a pen and getting this one sketch perfect, let's start another one. And then let's start another one. And let's, and getting yeah. the designers I've worked with to think that way too. And to, to, um, let's just knock out a whole bunch of these and then we can eliminate the bad ones. And, but not to be like, Oh, I'm going to like pitch just the right. Like we've got time for that later. Let's just throw out ideas. And, and that's those years there that stayed with me um, since and, and learning to deal with difficult people and whether it's difficult producers or, or colleagues um, those years were, were brutal in some ways, but really great in other ways. Right. I, I know that for me, what I learned was the patience and also like the, the not being precious about yeah. anything that you did that was so important to me or that became very important yeah. to me. Um, but also the, the expressive design uh, language of here's a key art image, there's a logo, there's also a, a way you approach verbiage and also uh, talent recognition. It, it, uh, it was a different a system of thinking, but still had expressive expression within the system. It, it changed my, com my approach completely. Actually, it's still, uh, it's still something I take with me to this day in almost everything I do. It's, it's such a, such a unique space. Uh, it's so, and so few designers have really done it. So few, it's such a small world and coming from Rolling Stone and magazines where I had a good reputation and could have gone somewhere else easily and continued to, to take a total shift and do something different was hard, and, but I wanted to do it because I wanted to see what doing this would be like. And, and I needed that kind of challenge. And I see why people don't do that because it's really hard. You know, you see what oh, you're yeah. good at and, and you kind of ride that out. But you, you kind of, in some ways, I, I felt like I was starting over because it was like, so what do you do? And where'd you come from? And it's like, oh, but people used to know who I was. And like, I used to, and yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's crazy. It doesn't matter. And then once you what become you part of that community with the theater people, then you're like in for life. You know? Yes. But it takes a little while to get in there. But yeah, what? Yeah, I'm one of so few people who got to do this. And I'm so lucky, you know, and I learned so much. So. And so much talent came out of that office during your time. Dana Tanamachi, Jeff Rogers. Yeah. Bash, uh, Rebecca Simnewitz, who I worked with a little bit at MTV. Oh, hey, there, hey. there was some amazing people, really. Yeah. I think Dan Savage also. Yes, I think yes, like, he was yeah. yeah. And then he worked there. Yeah. 
do you have, uh, or I know what during that time you also started uh, teaching or you became, uh, uh, you started teaching at SVA? I, no, Did, I started that... teaching SVA when I was at Rolling Stone. Oh, yeah. okay. Gotcha. So it's been gotcha, 30. Gotcha. How do you, how do you keep the time? How do you maintain, what's your I, work-life balance? That's insane to me. I taught in the evening at first. And uh, so it was just one night and I would get over there uh, the, the 214 to the photo building. Remember teaching in there. And then I switched over a few years later to teach an undergrad. And then Fred let me teach during the day. So I taught in the morning and then got to work in the afternoon because I was there until night anyway. So it almost didn't matter. Uh, and then at spot, I taught Friday afternoon. Uh, so I left early on Fridays and, and went to school. That was the one thing I was like, if I take this job, like I really still want to be able to do this. Uh, and I taught in the master's program then. So, so I've been lucky that I've had jobs that have allowed me to carve out some, some daytime to actually do it and, and either come back or leave early or whatever. And all, a few of us taught at, when I was at Rolling Stone and even at Spot, obviously. And it was important that if they wanted to do that, you know, tried to get Darren to teach and Vinny, uh, who was the other creative director, and it's like, you should do this, you know, you should be giving back and this will, this will make your world better. So, uh, so you should do it. Hmm. And the people I work with at VAP, I was like, you should be teaching. So they started teaching as well. So. And now at SVA, you are the chair of design and also chair for advertising for the BFA programs. Yes. yes? That's, yeah, that's a, a new-ish thing for you. How have you adjusted to that? That, I... I touch so many people. Yeah, I started working at SVA at Visual Arts Press about five or six years ago, five, uh, in 2016. And, uh, and I thought, well, this will be fun. Tony Rhodes asked me. Uh, I thought, okay, this is something different. Again, like totally different from what I was doing before. And I was like, okay, I like this. And then Richard was retiring and they asked me to take over his chair. I was like, oh my goodness. And so that's again, like one more time starting from scratch. I don't know how to do this and I've got to learn how to do this. And I'm following somebody who did it for 50 years. Who's the only person who did it. So, you know, every now and then you've got to kind of shake it up and, and throw yourself into something that's totally fresh for me, that's been the only way that I've, or that's, that's been the way that has kept me on my toes. Uh, that's the way that uh, keeps me awake and alive and challenged. And because I know at the end of everything I did, I'd always hit a point where it's like, uh, like I know how to do this now. And, yes. and not, not, and I don't even mean that in like a, you know, I know how to do this, no. but no, I, I'm very familiar yeah. with the feeling you're expressing right now. Right, yeah. And so the challenge of like not knowing what you're doing at all uh, yes. is a good thing every now and then. Not, not, not that often, but like every decade or so. <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the cult of personality. Um, historically speaking, for designers, like we have looked at the same heroes. I think for, for a lack of a better way to express it, I, and something that I've been pushing as of late is, is widening the aperture of design influence mm-hmm. and also um, the, the individuals that we, that we bring to the table as um, inspiring culture. So we talk about, I talk about the cult of personality of uh, where we used to bring priority to individuals who, who brought 
who got awards, who brought scope to, uh, who brought like a large project to the table or, or did like a large corporate logo. And then it would do the, the track of, um, you know, getting in all the magazines, design journalism. But now we have, uh, we're, we're seeing an influx of a lot of new influencers within the design space that haven't gone through a commercial art lens or gone through those paces. I don't think anything's either right or wrong. I think, um, I, I think, you know, gravity, gravitational pull is kind of what that is. Um, how do you feel about um, students coming into the game now that are names themselves that are their influencers like now that, uh, and that does it, I always question, does that make, do they have the chops? Like, do, do they, did they do the work? Do, is it necessary to even go through those paces now? Or, you know, are we creating a generation of creative thinkers that are kind of unhirable or is it entrepreneurial? I don't know. <laughs> uh, huh. Unhirable or entrepreneurial. That's interesting. Huh? I mean, it's certainly a generation who want to work for themselves, who, uh, who probably would be unhappy working for someone else. Um, it's fascinating for me to see people who are such rock stars right out of the gate. Um, that's something that took a lot longer uh, to, uh, to get to that point. And, and I sometimes question how much of it is social media uh, generated um, that, if you kind of go at it so hard on your own, you can get there sooner um, based on your, your ability to get out there and in a, in a uh, but it has to be backed with skill, with talent, with, with that gift um, to, to make it lasting. And there are probably some that I wonder, okay, let me see what you do 10 years from now uh, when you're a little older or when the, the novelty's worn off of whatever, it is that you're doing. Um, so we'll see, but there are others who just are so instantly brilliant and, uh, and wonderful, uh, and yeah, just gifted that I, I, I don't know that you need all the awards and all that stuff anymore. Uh, you need a, plat a platform and, yeah. and, uh, the, I mean, the idea of creating something on your own was so foreign to, to us um, in the mid-80s starting out. Uh, you worked for someone, you know, you wanted a, a job somewhere. Drew Hodges, who I worked for at Spot, was the exception of the group of us because he wanted his own thing. And, uh, you know, it was just like, no, your own thing. Like, your own studio? Wow, as a kid, like you can't do that. And he did, and he made it huge. Uh, he figured it out uh, and has retired and lives a very beautiful life. Uh, so he figured it out. But, you know, I, uh, we'll see for the others. There, but again, the talent that I see now. Uh, from people just starting out. It's like, damn, you're just starting out? Like, I feel like the technology has obviously made it a little bit easier in some ways to, to get stuff done that, that you can do stuff so much faster. But the bar is so high and there are people who are so good and there are so many people who are so good where it felt like, all right, there are a couple of people here and there who are really good. And, but yeah, as a, as a young person, you have... Uh, 
you have a lot of amazing competition out there, you know, but you also have this, as I said, with Drew sort of being the exception who started a company, we, we didn't, we wanted a job and you guys have the ability to change the world, you know, and that's, that's just mind blowing as, as young designers, you can do that. Um, yeah. So you got to jump on it, you know, and, and, and do whatever it is you're, you're doing, but also bear in mind the other stuff that you've got that capability to change the world and change the way we think and, and be an influencer, not just in the buying a, a brand of beer kind of influencer, but just in, in changing the way people think. And, you know, we made cool stuff. You, you can do a whole lot more than that. So it's on you. It's your responsibility to do that. And we'll, we'll be there pushing along and doing it with you, but, but you got to take the lead now. So, uh, and I think that we, we as old folks are ready to, you know, because there's such amazing talent that it's like, okay, you got this. You totally, you got this. So how has SVA adapted to the pandemic? How how was learning changed with the pandemic? Because I think right now, as a student, I benefited so much from just IRL interaction. Also physically, you know, talking to my, my classmates and being in the studio with my classmates, seeing the work, talking about it. Uh, well, we're not there. Uh, we right. start, we're starting three weeks later than we normally would. So we start in two weeks now, uh, the end of September, it is a 12 week semester, but with longer classes instead of 15. Uh, and just a lot of heartbreaking critiques. Heartbreaking critiques. <laughs> we spent instructors and everybody's adjunct. So people spent the summer in their own time going to the, uh, these Canvas and Zoom training uh, workshops that the school was offering. We've had weekly faculty meetings. People have spent their own time really upping their game for the semester. And uh, we'll be online. We'll see what happens in January. But uh, we're trying to break up the classes into sort of bite-sized morsels so that you're not sitting in front of your computer for three hours straight listening to somebody uh, or endless endless critiques. And I think it's beginning to shift into a new way of teaching. What's exciting yeah. is that you can find faculty from around the country, you know? Not that they, we have that many. There's no openings, really, because classes are smaller because uh, it's fewer students for everybody in every school this year. But uh, where possible, you can make different hires than you did before. You can have classes at different hours. Um, it, it, this is a really breakthrough year for an awful reason, but I think that we can make something out of it and then take little bits of it and sprinkle it through the regular year once we get back to normal that I think education's changed forever. And and that includes design education. So uh, people have been, on the faculty side, have been so wonderfully adaptable and where I feared that it'd be like, I can't do this, forget it, I'm not teaching. They're like, all right, let me, let me try this. Let me come to these classes. Let me, uh, people have been flexible and um, I hope the students will be too. They were good last semester and it's, I'm excited to get started again. Uh, and I think everybody else is too. And I feel like we weren't ready. Obviously we weren't ready in March. That was crazy, but we're ready now. Um, and so we'll see how it goes. And it's really sad though, not to get to meet kids in person 
and see them and uh but it, it you know we just have to roll with it yeah no same same i haven't seen my team um at the office since at least march so it's just a lot of just tiny heads on a screen uh, right now it's 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 unbelievable to me for these kids that are in school right now i know during my time as a student i've had a few different experiences where i i went to undergrad at Rutgers, so I had a big college experience. I got a, my MFA at SVA with, under Marshall Arisman. So that, that was a great, and I love Marshall. Marshall's like, I just gave a little uh, talk in his class not too long ago. I love Marshall and, and Kim Abondi. Um, and then I've also taught at Kane, and I've also subbed in high schools. I've, I've, seen, I've seen a few different angles of education, and um, from a creative space, um, we, we, historically speaking, never really spoke about our own identities in our space um, in virtue of wanting to learn structure and also rules, quote unquote rules, I think for lack of a better way of expressing it. But I think now we're all realizing the importance of celebration of identity and, and also the validation it comes, uh, that comes with that celebration in terms of the way that manifests itself as visuals and also and, and widening our visual language can you speak a little bit about the importance of celebrating someone's identity, especially in that early stage, and also adding more to that vocabulary? These students are just finding themselves. You know, I've since I've taught for so long, uh, I've seen the transformation. You know, of, of a kid from when they're starting out to when they graduate, that they're. Uh, they're sometimes the same person they were coming in, but often they've they've made huge changes. You know, they're on their own for the first time. Some are discovering who they are sexually. Um, they're exploring their identities in lots of other ways. Um, and so the art school experience is, uh, is such a unique one. And uh, all of these revelations and, and feelings and all of this new stuff comes through in the work. Uh, and I think after this summer and the spring and summer and all that the country has been through um, and all that we've discussed at our faculty meetings and internally uh, and things that I've reflected on myself this coming year is exciting because we're sort of hyper aware of what's going on with students and and how they see themselves and how the world sees them and and what they're speaking out about uh, and what they need from the school and what they need from us as faculty and uh, I we're all preparing ourselves to go one step deeper with the students to to let them fly their flags and uh and be extra careful how we speak to them and and what we talk about and and to be really sensitive to the things that um that are distressing them um and so of all the awful stuff that's happened in the last month it's forced a lot of self-examination and uh, and I think for for those of us of a certain age who have 
been through awful stuff as a kid um, or weird stuff, like the, the things that I think, okay, well, my upbringing in the Bronx and what I went through and, and questions that I've had about my own identity and my race and, and all the weird stuff that I've had to listen to as somebody who was thought to be passing and someone who's a light-skinned Black person and all that. This, like, this nonsense and the, the weird honesty. It's like, do you know who I am? Like, what are you, uh, what are you saying? Um, the stuff that I've had to listen to over the years. And I think of what these kids are going through now. I think, well, yeah, well, what did I go through? But it's so different now. Um, and their worlds are all, you know, lived outwardly through their, their social media. And, uh, we're just, I have to be sensitive, you know, to think, well, you don't know what I went through. It's like, okay, I don't know what you went through. And, uh, and you're in a really public space where I wasn't. Um, and you can have all kinds of abuse coming your way. Uh, so this is, you know, I'm veered off from what you're asking, but this, this is such an important year for us to really think about how we interact with people. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. I know that we're, I, I for me, I'm, I'm, I've reconsidered like the way I do almost everything, but that's because I'm, I'm personally just striving to be better. I'm striving to just make, uh, surround myself with a culture that is striving for betterness and striving for, you know, a path forward. So mm -hmm. that's, that's amazing to hear. Yeah. What's weird now though, is you end up getting more calls about stuff that focus on, you know, well, you're black, so can you do this? Like that kind of stuff that happens now right. a little bit. Right. And the, the interpreter, the interpretation call. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's emotional labor. You know, I'm mm -hmm. kind of getting a bit on the high horse right now, but, and I, and I've read in your interviews too, where you talk about the, the dangers of, of assigning, uh, you know, asking someone to be the spokesperson for their race or the spokesperson for their gender, the spokesperson mm -hmm. for, you know, their identity that is representative of many people. Yeah. Like it, that's, it causes emotional labor. It also, it also puts one in an uncomfortable position. It's tokenizing. Yeah. And I'm sure that you, you felt that. Before. Oh yeah. And people like, they don't mean it, but they don't realize. Right. I remember a million years ago, Rolling Stone, an editor, uh, when Spike Lee do the right thing. It's like, well, I really, I've been dying to ask you what you think. You know, I really want to get your opinion. It's like, huh? Like, oh, oh, really? Oh, and that happens all the time. Oh, yeah. It's like, what do you think? What can you tell? It's yeah. like, I am not the spokesperson. Please, please don't do that. So, right, right. Well, I, it seems like a lot of people now. What did the the one thing that I do appreciate now is the the willingness of people being vocal, yeah. who are willing to be vocal. I think that that is a, a yeah a positive of, of the new ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I know that we're, we're coming close to our time here and I want to make sure that you, you, you start your day uh, <sighs> same here, but I, I, one thing I want to touch on just for a little bit is that you're on the de design subcommittee chair. You are the design subcommittee chair in the citizen stamp advisory committee for mm -hmm. the United States postal service. And you've designed a stamp. Uh, I've specifically designed one, stamp. Yeah. Uh, celebrating the emancipation proclamation, yeah. which I think is dope. What, can you say anything about the importance of not just 
the United States Postal <laughs> Service because we are uh, we are in a moment right now. Oh my God! You know, I, I gotta say that. <sighs> Like, I can actually say, I know the United States Postal Service now. Like, these are good people. Yeah. Like, oh my goodness, what is going on there? Uh, this yeah. is this is madness. You want to give a call to the Postmaster like, General? And uh, I don't know who's on your Rolodex. Pass on that, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, really, let, me, let me make some calls here. The people that I work with on 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 CSAC uh, are, are such wonderful folks with only kindness in their heart and only the desire to represent the best of American culture in the stamps that, that we, uh, that we work on. Um, and to see what's happening now, like, Oh my goodness, to the idea that I can't even get a letter to get there in a couple days right now. Like, uh, this, and it, I wonder who do I know there who might lose their job or like, what? What? Um, the cool thing, though, about being on this committee is being able to help introduce um, the art directors and the committee to new artists and designers and illustrators. And and uh, I, I get to say, hey, do you know this person's work? And, uh, and to, to be able to work with the other folks uh, in the group to ex- help push forward um, some really fantastic ideas that the art directors have. Um, so I've served six years and hope to serve another six more before my, my time is up. Uh, and uh, it's probably the coolest thing I get to do. You know, And I was so intimidated the first year or so because uh, the person who was running the subcommittee uh, resigned from the uh, <laughs> from CSAC after my first meeting. So by the next meeting, uh, three months later, it was my committee. And <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, but now the people that I, I meet with four times a year in DC, although we're not right now, are like, I really look forward to seeing them. I look forward to speaking in the meetings and I've learned more confidence and I know what they're talking about now. And just, again, it's like, do, do things to challenge yourself, young people, young listeners. Uh, even if it scares you for the first year, do it anyway. You know, you're going to get better at it and get involved with crazy stuff like the postal service, you know, go figure. Yeah. Who knew the postal service would be crazy? Uh Uh-huh. They were just like these nice, quiet people. And now it's madness there. Uh. I know. I bet. All right. So Gail, thank you so much for contributing your time, your wisdom, and all your stories. This is so, it's been so enjoyable for me. And also, you know, it's, for me, I, I look at this podcast like it's part of my my furthering of my personal growth and also my audience's growth and, you know, my furthering of my education. So thank you for allowing me to be your student. Oh, my pleasure. This was fun. And uh, you say hi to Bajan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll say hi to Bajan uh-huh. for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to drive that car soon. <sighs> there you go. Oh, say hi to Zapong for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, still- no, Zapong is no longer here. So, oh, six okay. months, my common law husband. I figured by now we're my son. I don't know which, but uh, <laughs> Zapong is oh, back in Brooklyn. So. <laughs> oh, okay. That's good. Then I'll say hi to yeah, Zapong. But we text all day because we're so used to speaking so much that I'm just like, <gasps> I have to text. I have to tell Zapong. Oh, funny. Yeah. So funny. Oh, and amazing poster in the subway right now. Oh, thank you. I haven't seen it, so I have to go and see it next week. 
Yeah, I haven't seen it either. I've only seen, I've only been in the subway like a handful of times. So yeah, really, yeah. So no one's gonna see it, but yeah. <laughs> oh well. All right. All right, Gail. I'll let you go. Right, thank thank you, you so much. All right, see ya. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Gail Anderson. I feel like I just received another graduate degree. That was super fun. Uh, you can find the First Generation Burden podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and anywhere that you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. Uh, also, we just did a bit of a facelift and made it more of a portal for a lot of different types of content, so check that out. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu. Thank you to Listening Party and Desgen team for their support. Don't forget to vote November 3rd. You can do it by mail, just like Gail said. So don't forget... Your life depends on it. Thank you for listening. Be safe, everyone.